if you look at the health system across the world, health inequality and health capacity is going to be the biggest problem of our time. If you look at the 20th century, it's really about a century of the molecule, where scientists dive deeper and deeper into the human body. It's really been a, a century of zooming in and discovering new techniques. But I really believe that the 21st century is going to be about zooming out and look at health at the system. That's Dr. Angus Tran, the co-founder of Harrison AI, and this is Wild Hearts. Hi everyone, I'm Mason Yates, and this is Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few, taking giant leaps forward. These founders are total lunatics in the best possible way. The level of ambition they bring to the table is astounding. Angus and Dimitri, his brother and co-founder, have built and deployed AI solutions at an unheard of pace in healthcare. In just 18 months, they built a chest x-ray product in partnership with Australia's largest radiology network, which is now being used by two thirds of the private healthcare market. That's one quarter of all chest x-rays in Australia using Harrison's algorithms. Off the back of this, they've raised 129 million, Australia's largest series B round to date, and they've grown to more than 250 employees and hiring many, many more. Today, we'll hear about Angus's fascinating background which includes stories about the first ever computer in Vietnam and how meetings with industry legends like Paul Ramsey shaped the company that they're building today. We'll also learn about their unique business model, how they've been able to build so fast while working with huge organizations who have deep due diligence requirements. Why Harrison's approach is special compared to the hundreds of other medical AI companies out there and so much more. We'll also speak with Blackbird's partner, Samantha Wong, to learn about the potential she saw in the Harrison AI brothers the business model that compelled her to invest, how she thought about building products that are 10 times better in highly regulated markets and a thesis on the future of healthcare. This episode is brought to you by the team of Blackbird. Without further ado, here's Dr. Angus Tran. So let's start at the heart of your upbringing. What was the best lesson your parents taught you? Oh, for people who haven't heard about the Harrison story. So I actually came from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, and Dimitri and I mm. were both the co-founders of Harrison. We grew up in Vietnam. Brothers. Uh, yeah, we, we're brothers in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting growing up experience in Vietnam. Both our parents are math teachers, so it was very academical growing up. Lots of emphasis on education. Our father is particularly interesting characters because he, he write a national textbook. Wow, And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in Vietnam, uh, there's only one textbook. So it's not like in, in Australia <laughs> or US where you have various books that conform to the same curriculums that teachers have the discretions to choose. In Vietnam, there's only one textbook and he was one of the author there. So it's a lot of fun times of math teachers saying, Angus and Mitri, surely you guys would know how to solve the math, <laughs> right? But one of the things that I learned from my, my dad is really the powers of, of trying your very best. I remember growing up, never really get rewarded for scores or marks or achievements, which you would expect you know, from father being a teacher, but really getting that rewards by trying, right? Building or creating something. So some of the biggest lessons I remember was building a, a toy or building a, a alarm system for the door when we got broken and some of our laptop was stolen. And that was some of the things that my dad keep telling me or his friends over and over again. It was never the mark from school. And that really create the right framework for me on, on what success looked like, which is you got to be building something rather than learning uh, Pacific. And of course, I remember the Chinese New Year, we have this thing called breaking in the pen where everyone would be enjoying their holidays and uh, stroke of midnight of the Chinese New Year, he would line us up and do some homework. 
And not because we needed to, but that's a ritual to, to show that you got to be the hardest working person in the room and moving ahead when everyone else is resting. It's that mentality growing up with my dad. So it's a good experience for sure. Our father was really into computer science and he was probably one of the first to introduce that as a subject in school in Vietnam. Yeah, I was going to ask, didn't he import the first ever computer into Vietnam? One of our uncle from, from France actually shipped it to us. And my dad wow. kind of learned how to program. And with a math background, he, he wrote some of the early textbook in computer science. It was Pascal back then, which is a really old programming language. <laughs> a lot of people from that generation still remember that book. There's talk about things like writing chess engine in Pascal back then. And because of that, I got introduced quite early into computer science going up and was competing in coding competition to try to write optimization algorithm to stack container ships and things like that. I mean, growing up, I always thought I was going to be a software engineer. I was so fascinated by the way that computer science can really scale what we do and knowledge beyond what human can really achieve on our own. Yeah. It's such a powerful lesson on working when everyone's sleeping. And it sounds like it was so true with your father and the same with your mom teaching the next generation of Vietnamese children. So that's wonderful to hear. What was your earliest memory of arriving in Australia? So I came to Australia a bit close to 14 years ago. And I actually okay. came to, to study in year nine. So the earliest memory is landing in Sydney and going to the school here in Balmain called the Balmain campus as part of the Sydney Secondary mm -hmm. College. I'm going interviewed by the, the principal then, and I didn't speak very good English back then, actually. So arriving in the country was such a surreal environment and to have the opportunities to go and learn from another country and enriching my experience. So that was a good time growing up as a 16-year-old kid in Sydney. Funnily enough, these days I can identify myself as an Australian because a lot of my life skill is derived after you kind of turn 16 and growing up. So it's interesting having a, such a big team in Vietnam because my life skill in Vietnam kind of frozen in time as a 16 years old. So sometimes I would be addressing the team and I sound like a 16-year-old. And it's, uh, it's actually very funny because <laughs> I don't have any working vocabulary in Vietnamese. Yeah. I'm surprised. And, oh gosh, there's so much to pull on there. How did you find growing up as an immigrant when were you 16 at the time? How, how did you find it growing up with little English, but with that sort of backdrop of that hardworking mentality that it seems like it's been a part of your upbringing? Yeah, certainly a very big part of that is this sense of gratefulness and for the opportunities. And I'll try very hard to make the most out of the privilege that I have to be here in Australia. And, and so lots, lots of focus in academic achievement when I was in school. It take a while to, to pick up the new language, but was always inclined toward leadership. I was leading the school team as the school captain for several years. So that was an wow. interesting experience. And in, in my year 12, actually came first in every subject. So oh my gosh. It's, it's such a fast growth <laughs> time to go to a new country and learn a new language and learn a way of life in Australia. So that was quite a focus period for me. Want to make sure that the sacrifice that my parents made to put me to where I am today in Australia was worth it. And on the back of that, you know, end up getting into uh, University of New South Wales and study medicine there afterward. And before we jump into your medicine career, it sounds like you've always had an itch to build something. Mm. Is that always been true for you? Yeah, I think it's like we come back to the way that I was growing up in Vietnam and my dad always giving me that early encouragement and incentive whenever I put in the best effort to build something rather than the, the outcome itself. So I was part of some innovation competition in primary school where I built like robotic arms out of toys parts 
and go to different innovation competition to showcase this piece of work that I've done. So early on, I always had this itch of creating something and building something from scratch. And that always inspired me. So that translates to you know, my education in Australia, in school, as well as into my later training in medicine. Talk about who Paul Ramsey was to you mm. and what that relationship was like, the founder of Ramsey Healthcare. Yeah, so the connection with, with Paul Ramsey was actually through Dimitri. So Dimitri was working for Paul for a while and he was such a good person for us. Paul was actually the inspiration for me to study medicine because I remember being an immigrant from Vietnam. I had opportunities to meet Paul and I remember he invited us to his place for dinner, Dimitri and I, and what an incredible person to have the grace to do that. And he was asking me, you know, Angus, what do you want to do uh, with your life? And I was like, Paul, I don't know. I'm, I'm a high school student. I don't know what to do with my life. I'm pretty good with this computer science, pretty yeah. good at school. I said, Angus, that's very, book smart is very different to, to street smart. And I said, Paul, maybe I want to be a software engineer. So I, I want to build something, to create something. And Paul said to me that, Angus, you, you can learn that anytime you like online. But with medicine, we have opportunities to impact people's life in a very fundamental level at a moment where they are most vulnerable and, and needed the most help. And you can't learn mm -hmm. medicine in the book. Medicine is a relationship with the people and you need to go and, and, and learn that and you need to go and apprentice that. So how about you go mm -hmm. and study medicine and see if you can apply your creativity, right? Your urge to create products to impact people's life through medicine, but you can't learn medicine in a book. And that really mm -hmm. stuck with me. And I remember going home and go on to the University of New South Wales website and apply into the medical course. Of course, it's very competitive to get into medicine. And of it's course, such yeah. fate because I remember having about 10 minutes left on online portal to apply. So it was probably the fastest medical application anyone ever put together. And I think <laughs> like, I remember having a screenshot of submitting that application with a few minutes to spare. So there's like a, it's such a split road now that I'm almost not going to be a doctor. But wow. that's, that, that's the story of how Paul kind of convinced me to do medicine. And you started a company before Harrison. What, what was that company that you were starting and, and what led you to start it? Well, this is the dorm room startup and it couldn't be any more stereotypical. I was going through medical school and this is my <laughs> second year of my medical degree. To, to be honest with you, Mason, like I did too much study when I was in, in high school. As you gather, I, I topped every subject I did. That, that means I had no social life. So when I went to medical school... I had enough. Initially, I didn't really want to do any more study. So the, the first year, I was lots of party, like lots of going out with good friends. And I just wanted to connect and meet new people. And at that time, there was a startup competition in the university called Peter Ferrell, where with a group of friends came up with these ideas. People were going to, to a lot of parties and require you to buy a lot of tickets to events and things like that. And what I noticed at the time was to make some money on the side, I was selling some of these tickets and earning commissions as pocket money. And I noticed that if I, I somehow convinced people that their friends was attending the party, they would be more likely to actually go because people actually go to meet the friends, not to the party itself. So we came up with this app, this silly idea to allow people to buy tickets online, but see who actually committed the funds to buying the tickets rather than just clicking, I'm going on Facebook. And it was a very simple ideas. We started companies from Connect that, that did that with a group of friends. And yeah, I mean, I, it was just my first introduction to what it means to, to start a company and, and work with other people. And funnily enough, I, I actually pitched this idea to Rick at Blackbird because he actually went to the university startup meetup at night. Yeah. And I remember I pitched this idea to, to Rick in, in one of the pitching competition there. And afterwards, Angus, that's a terrible idea. Uh, you are <laughs> completely wasting your time here. Uh, this is 
oh, thinking gosh. too small. I, I can't tell you how many times I hear people coming up with ideas that only help their university. This is not a universal <laughs> problem. You got to think global. Uh, so it's yeah. actually my first encounter with Blackbird. And I'm actually quite thankful for it because it was really honest and accurate feedback. And obviously in, in second and third year, I decided medicine is really my passion. I really wanted to help people through medicine. So I, I saw my, my, my stake in the company is back to the other co-founders. They take it on forward and I really hunker down and, and focus uh, in medicine. Mm. I guess the end of one thing is really beginning for the, the other. And that's the beginning of Harrison, actually. Wow. So immediately after you sold it, you decided it's time to get back in and increase the ambition. But I guess there's two threads. One is, how did you know where to start in medicine, mm. where you would have the biggest impact? And what were the ground level insights that you went, you know what, there could be something here? Sometimes people like to, like to think that there's kind of this grand plan since the beginning, but mm. really most of the time it feel like you're driving the car and your, your, the steering wheel is off. So I'd be lying <laughs> to say that I had this vision on the way through, but I can definitely yeah. tell you this. When I started medicine, people asked me why I wanted to do medicine. And I generally believe that I wanted to help people. And that was the core of what I want to do. If you look at the health system across the world, health inequality and health capacity is going to be the biggest problem of our time. It is the biggest equalizers for us all because all of us eventually mm -hmm. will get sick and require medical attention. And yet our biggest problem isn't the fact that we have a scientific discovery. And if you look at the 20th century, it's really about a century of the molecule where scientists dive deeper and deeper into the human body, starting with the human conditions, then to the organs and the cellular level, down to the protein level, and, and these days to the DNA level. So it's really been a, a century of zooming in and discovering new techniques, you know, new procedures to treat people, new molecules. But I really believe that the 21st century is going to be about zooming out and look at health at system. And for me, that was the, the thing that was bucking me the whole time going through medical school is that here I am in Australia with such privilege, learning about medicine and learning about this incredible science. But every year I would go back to Vietnam and spend the summer holiday there a couple of months in a hospital in Vietnam. And what I realized is they didn't need another brilliant surgeon who can do this complex surgical procedure. Um, I, I love cardiology. I was going to be a cardiac surgeon if, if I was to continue work, right. practicing medicine. But it was clear that what people was dying from was standard pneumonia and heart failures, the basic stuff. So that's when it kind of clicked for me, Mason, which is it is not about doing brilliant things in medicine. It's about doing simple thing repeatedly and doing simple thing brilliantly. That, that is really the key to all of this. And that's like the, the guiding light for me when I start Harrison, which is how can I take the simple practice of medicine and really apply software scalability to it such that we mm -hmm. can deliver the increase in capacity in healthcare globally that we really needed to tackle the, the, this biggest challenge of our time, which is how do we look after all of these people when they age and get older and get sick? love that idea of zooming in of the 20th century and now it's our chance to zoom out mm -hmm. and on that note what is the vision for harrison ai yeah so for harrison now our vision is actually quite simple which is to increase the global capacities for good healthcare. and the way that we know that we would achieve that in the next five years is if we can increase the quality of care for a million patients every day the way that harrison planned to achieve that vision is by partnership and creating these dedicated ventures 
and each ventures of which focus on a different areas of medicine. So Harrison really combining our operating models and proven AI methodologies and IP with the clinical expertise and knowledge of the space from our clinical partners and in combinations, we can take to market well-being product that is the best in this field in each of the respective domain. And that is the core behind Harrison, which is that partnership model. And that's why we've been able to move so quickly. You mentioned capacity as a really key word in that mission. What do you mean by capacity? So I think not a single health system around the world has enough people to do what they need to do. And really the constraint behind good healthcare around the world is the capacity of human resources and how quickly we can train them. So going through medical school, I, I know that it, it takes a lot to train good clinicians. So for example, going out of high school, it would take you six years to be a doctor, at which point you would need to spend a decade more on average to become a subspecialist, uh, like a radiologist or pathologist. Mm. That means that to address the current constraint in resources, even if we implement sweeping changes today, we would not be able to train enough clinicians, radiologists, and pathologists of the future. Don't get me wrong, doctors are doing heroic work every single day to look after our, our populations. But clearly what we need is a software-like scalability that sits in front of a good solution. And because of that, at Harrison, what we want to do is to create a set of comprehensive algorithms in many different clinical domains that can meaningfully support the clinicians of the future, such as radiologists and pathologists in doing what they do, but at much greater accuracy and efficiency, such that we can look after an ever-increasing needs uh, of clinicians into the future. In countries like the UK, for example, there's statistics that shows that only about 3% of the NHS trust actually have enough pathologists to staff their department. And the backlog for radiology imaging continue to grow all across the world, meaning that people getting much more delayed diagnosis. And in the back of, of such a backlog, the rate of misdiagnosis continue to rise given the increase in demand, means that radiologists are going through scans in a much faster pace than they've ever had. And that means potential for misdiagnosis, especially at night, especially when there's not enough radiologists. So we think technology like what we're building at Analyze is really fundamental and is a very crucial part of the solution to the future health capacity issues. That is fascinating. And I love that idea of putting a solution in front of an already heroic solution, which is our doctor's. And I've just been blown away by the speed at which Harrison is moving. And you talk to the joint ventures and the partnerships that you've been able to build and how that's a really key competitive advantage to moving quickly. Can you talk through how that's been an advantage and what is it exactly about that partnership that has helped enable the speed of Harrison? I think the, the very biggest part of our partnership is the clinical insight and knowledge into the problem space. And indeed, these partners are the biggest users of our technology in the early days. That increased cycle of alterations and feedback is what allows us to get the right solution out quickly. Additionally, we think that our partners come with a lot of raw materials that when combined with the Harrison proven methodologies of developing AI at scale quickly, meaning that we can be the best in any respective clinical domain rather than being a one vertical only organization. And because of that, you've seen the tractions that we had to date 
where within 18 months of existence, we release our first product. And within eight months of being in market, we now support one in four Australian radiologists, which is really an astounding number in medtech or otherwise in healthcare. So that partnership model is really what allows us to build the right solution at the right scale earlier rather than later. That is actually just unbelievable scale and traction. Mm. Can you highlight the difference between your approach versus what literally hundred of other medical AI companies are doing where they are focused on a particular narrow problem set? Yeah, and I think this is my theory and it's to be tested, which is the lean startup and the methodology that has worked so well and has served so many great companies in the technology space is really the curse of the med tech space. I like to say that there's no such thing as an MVP product in medicine. How would you like an MVP penicillin or an MVP surgical procedure? <laughs> you would not. And in a way, it really requires that complete vision upfront and a overwhelming investment in both resources and time to build the product that deliver the value that you wanted to deliver before you really add value into clinical space. So we see hundreds of AI startups in the field of uh, AI in healthcare, in radiology and otherwise, really building MVP product, isn't it? You know, they would build a, a solution that look at COVID, an AI solution that detects uh, pneumonia, an AI solution that detects brain bleeds, and this kind of point solution, and there'll be hundreds of companies that do this. And, and the analogy that I like to use is that it's like building a spell checker that only look at words starting with the letter A. It doesn't <laughs> check for punctuation. It doesn't yeah. check for any other thing. And eventually you will need to build a, a 26 AI from 26 different companies to help you check your spelling. Mm. Uh, and that's not a very good way of actually doing this. At Annalise and Harrison at large, our philosophy is a little bit different, which is to partners with global scale companies gather the appropriate resources in terms of capital data and processes and build comprehensive AI solution up front, such as our chest x-ray product that cover 124 different findings, really every finding that you want to see in a chest x-ray and doing it in a scalable way up front and investing in validating and testing that technology. And I think that's really is the big differentiator between mm. Harrison and now venture analysts and other players in the same field. I love that. And using Annalise as the example, how does that really give clinicians a superpower for their time and for their accuracy? Yeah. If you look at the a typical radiologist, one of the things that's very challenging for them is they will show up to work and there's a work list of hundreds of chest x-ray and other imaging modality for them to look at. And the biggest question has always been which one of those they need to look at first, because clearly due to a capacity problem, you can't see everything immediately. One of the things that AI and analyst CXR has been able to help is able to read on those x-ray before the radiologist has a chance to look at them. And if there's any finding in those x-ray that are critical, we can actually flag that and allow the radiologist to pay their attention toward the most critical case first, and then look at the less critical case after. So that means that a single radiologist of the future can look after bigger populations of patients, right? More cases without compromising on patient outcome and risking misdiagnosis. The other thing that we can do is to take what the radiologists are doing today and making it safer. I like to say that you drive much faster if you have a seatbelt on. I, I would dare you to drive at over 100 kilometers an hour with a seatbelt <laughs> off. It would feel no thanks. And, and that's kind of how it works. You know, Annalise is really a second pair of eye for the radiologist so that they can be confident that if they're going through large volume of case, especially when they are fatigued and tired, 
that there's an expert level algorithm that look at every X-ray that they look at and other imaging modality into the future and remind them if they miss any critical diagnosis and that allow them to be much more efficient and, and be much faster. Some of our radiologists, when they use the tool and, and write to us, they said using analysis is like having another expert friend who sit over your shoulders, gently remind you every time you, you make a reading to, to make sure that you're not missing critical findings, but doesn't mm-hmm. get offended if you disagree with them. So it's really that relationship between human and machine that allow the clinician of the future to look after larger populations of patients without compromising on care. I can imagine it'd be really hard for a clinician to expose themselves to say, hey, I got this wrong, or hey, I'm not so sure about this. Can you help me? Have you seen that sort of reputational risk impact the way that clinicians work? You know, Mason, like being trained as a clinician myself, I think a lot of people are are very well-intentioned in medicine and they're there, right? Because they believe in looking after patients. So at the end of the day, the thing that drives people is good patient outcome. No one wants to do anything other than that. And there's really no shame to, to admit this because myself going through medical school, I got about two tutorial, uh, probably an hour and a half each on how to read a chest x-ray. And if I wasn't running Harrison and work in public hospital near you, I would be looking at those x-ray and making very important calls on what to do with, with the patient to discharge or to admit them. I wouldn't feel offended, right? If I have a clinicians that can help look at every x-ray for me and help me check. So I think people will find that technology like this will be very welcoming and really support them as part of their day-to-day workflow. And indeed, we hear a lot of positive feedback from radiologists that they find that this is the tool that will be integrated as part of their workflow in, of the future. So I do want to drill in again on what it means from a differentiated point of view to cover 124 different outcomes versus Mm. the narrow approach. And maybe you can be illustrative on an example on what is narrow, what is a narrow or in-depth clinical finding that a lot of these competitors are focused on. Yeah, so currently when we enter the the space, we find that people has been taking quite a narrow approach. So for example, on a chest X-ray, which is the most commonly done medical imaging procedure, most competitors has really taken an approach of building a use case by use case solution. So for example, they would take a finding called pneumonia or pneumothorax and build a, a single solution out of that or a suite of solutions that cover a couple of findings. And the challenge with this is it's very difficult for the radiologist to appreciate what the AI cover and what it doesn't. What that means is the radiology of the future, if we continue on this route, we'll need to build by hundreds of AI solutions to cover their diagnostic need. Whereas with analysts, our differentiating factors is that we build the complete solution upfront, once again, going against your natural inclination to build MVP product and build a complete chest X-ray solution that cover over hundred findings that are shared. And what that means is that we can comprehensively cover all of the diagnosis that you really need on that chest X-ray. And that is in part the advantage of the joint venture where you get access to all of their data so that you can actually train and run Annalise on top of that to make sure it's comprehensive. Correct. And I think we also highly value the clinical inputs as well. Each of these domains are extremely focused and having access to partners with the clinical problem in mind, meaning that we can build this kind of solution that fit for purpose uh, since the very start. And, and that means that we, we can be more confident investing in building such a comprehensive solution and mm. be confident that that will meet the clinical needs. Is there a risk that 
as you go from customer to customer, because Annalise is trained with one joint venture and one set of data, that it may not be as transferable to different customers and different geographies. Yeah, and I think this is really the the advantage of building AI technology out here in Australia. There's no such thing as an Australian. Perhaps we are one of the most diverse population in the world where there's a really big part of this country is built around immigrants like myself. That means that the technology that's built and tested here in Australia is likely to go to work in many other places in the world. And this is also part of the reason why we'd like to partner with global scale and global players like IMED, because that allows us to build technology that's not only applicable here in Australia, but to the rest of the world. And indeed, this technology has already been used across Australia, as I mentioned. This year, we will do over 600,000 lives from our single chest X-ray technology Wow. Um, and we are starting to deploy into UK and Malaysia as well. What wow. an incredible traction for medtech companies within two years. Oh, it's unbelievable. And then it makes me question, what is the experience like at the clinician level? It really sounds like it's a tool for clinicians built by clinicians. But talk to maybe some stories that you've heard after speaking with some clinicians at the ground level. We, we do quite extensive user testing and feedback after and before the deployment. And a universal feedback that we've been hearing is that radiologists are initially quite skeptical of the technology and understandably so. Uh, but after only a few cases going through the tool, they quickly realize that this is a, a second pair of eye for them. And that is a really powerful thing to, to see radiologists really describing the analytics CFR tool in a very humanistic way. And I really think this will be an indispensable tool for radiologists in the future. Many of our clinicians who use the tool do work in the public system, for example, where they have not yet get access to the same tool. They only have this in a private setting. They actually describe reporting chest x-ray without analysis as in a way feeling naked, right, with the newfound appreciations of what the AI can do for them. One of the studies that we did in the real-world deployment of technology involving about 3,000 chest X-ray and 11 radiologists, we asked these radiologists after every single X-ray that they look at to fill out a small survey. And one of the questions in that survey was, did the AI tell you anything that you didn't see originally by yourself? And whether or not that had significantly changed the management of the patient because of it. And to our surprise, after this survey, we found that one in every 30 report, the radiologist actually tick a box voluntarily saying that the, the AI actually told me something that changed care for the patient. Wow. So if you do the math, this year alone, and this, of course, we've only been in market for eight months after being regulatory clear, that's 600,000 one in 30 of that is 20,000 lives this year alone, where there's a material change to patient care because of the AI system supporting radiologists, if you project that out. And that is the scalability that I needed when, when I started Harrison, at least to apply that multiple, that software-like scalability in front of such a deep problem and biggest problem of our time, which is the healthcare capacity. And that's such a powerful thing to, and reassure us here at Harrison that we are on the right path. It is just unbelievable, the scale. And you mentioned earlier, one of the driving forces for you as a doctor was to see how you could make a greater impact. And given your experience as a doctor, how do you think that's shaped the way that you've built these products? Hmm. 
You know, one amazing, one of the most commonly asked questions from our team and, and our investors is, uh, Angus, what is it like to skip out on medicine and, and to do a startup? <laughs> and I actually think that in a way, I'm still practicing medicine. I don't see myself as giving up on medicine. It's just that I'm practicing medicine in a very different way than society may expect without a stethoscope around my neck or a scalpel in my hand doing surgery. But by building these AI technologies that can empower other clinicians to scale what they do beyond what they can achieve within their own lifetime. So really the way that we think about this technology is that this is a tool and instrument for clinicians of the future to look after more patient more safely, given the same amount of constraint and resources. And the amazing thing that as a civilization we have achieved over the last 10 years or so is we've gotten really good at software engineering. We got really good at scalability which means that whatever good ideas that anyone around the world have, you can put a thousand necks in front of it almost immediately. If you want to come up with a good way to, to do design without a lot of expertise, you can put a thousand necks in front of it and deploy it across anywhere in the world. A company we all know as Canva. If you want to find a new way of, of doing agile engineering, a scale that software engineering gives you that superpower. And I think to a lot of the audience of this podcast who are potentially software engineer or, or, or product people, you guys hold amazing superpower in order to scale whatever it is that are good ideas around the world. And while applying that thousand X in front of the biggest problem of our time, which is healthcare capacity. And that's how I've been thinking about shaping a vision at Harrison, because ultimately what we're trying to do is to distill the medical knowledge and capabilities into this AI model and AI system, and then using the scalability of software engineering to take that to everybody around the world and create an infinitely scalable shield around the healthcare system. So given the scale that you're now operating at, how do you truly measure customer love? It's a good question, Mason. And I think there's many areas which we can speak to this. Certainly one of the key important area for us is ability to receive feedbacks from our users as they continue to use the tool. So recently we work on a feedback functionality that allowed the radiologist to actually flag to us if they think that they see a case that they potentially disagree with what the AI was saying, and that allows us to collect some of those metrics. But one of the things that we've been working on is more lightweight way of collecting this. And indeed, one of the survey we perform at the end of the initial rollout and pilot of the technology involving about 60 Australian radiologists, so quite a meaningful amount of radiologists across Australia. And they, one of the questions that we ask is, um, how disappointed would you be if we are to take the tool away from you. And the surprising numbers is that over 7% of the users who've used the tool for a meaningful period of time indicated that they would be at least disappointed or about 30% say they'd be very disappointed if you take a tool away from them. And I think this is one of the very good statistics to indicate how engaged our users with this tool. 100%. And at the end of the day, that is the lifeblood of any business, true customer love. Done that. How are you thinking about launching new products in new verticals to reignite that same customer love? Yeah, so as you know, with our recently announced capital raise, we'd really be go going to be focusing on two things. So number one is to continue to drive the breadth of our product portfolio within a field of radiology in analyse. Early next year, we're looking to release our second product, which is a comprehensive CT brain technology, which once again will cover over 100 findings on a CT brain. And this would be great because CT brain is probably the second most commonly done medical imaging procedure 
And that's going to be quite a critical modality as well. The second thing that we're looking to do at Harrison is to enter into a new ventures in the field of pathology through our partnership with Sonic Health. And from that venture, we're looking to once again, build our comprehensive portfolio product to support the pathologists of the future as well. So that's going to be our vision to address a very meaningful part of the medical care of the future. Without a doubt, given what you've just said, what else are you excited to build over the next 12 months? You know, for us at the moment, one of the areas that we are focusing on is to grow our capabilities and our people functions. As you can imagine, Harrison's success is going to be hinged on abilities for us to be a world-class team to execute each of these ventures. And at the moment, we're a very fast-growing organization with over 40 job openings in every uh, one of our startups right. inside of the Harrison family. So as we're growing incredibly fast quickly. And as part of that, a very strong focus in building a strong culture, a culture where we can successfully execute on this vision, but also a place where people really do their best work as well. That's one of the things that I'm most proud of, which is people at Harrison really believe in this mission and see that as their personal way of expressing their, their mission by doing work at Harrison through some of this venture. One of the stories I like to share is, I think it was last year, our head of product was about to go on a holiday. And I was asking him, his name is Nick, what were you doing for the holiday? And Nick said that I'm actually going away to my hometown in rural Australia to visit my family. And I'm actually going to be popping into one of the radiology clinic down the street from where I live. And uh, I get, get, have it on good account that the analytic chest X-ray technology is being used there. Wow. Um, and I wanted to go in to see it for myself because this is where my sister, my, my family and, and people I know go to get their imaging done. So I'm, I'm very proud that this technology that I have a very big part in building is going to be looking after the people that I care the most for. And that, that is the kind of culture that we have here at Harrison, which is a very focused, very high performance. Everyone on your left and right are some of the best people you've ever met. But certainly underpin all of that is this sense of missions that everybody is really there to do their life best work. And that's the big driver behind what we do at Harrison. It's amazing. And you sort of, as a listener, can picture what stunning success looks like. To you, what does stunning success mean at Harrison? I think if in the next five years, we could build several ventures that cover many of the critical functions of healthcare ventures, I think that would be a very stunning success for Harrison. My, my dream would be that one day we would go and get our chest x-ray done and, and analyze uh, chest x-ray technology would pick up the lung cancer. That might then get biopsy and the pathologist support by one of our venture technology will help diagnose that cancerous tumors. And then we, when we go and get radiation oncology treatment, another AI from our companies will be helping in that treatment process. So really that end-to-end -end visions of what AI technology can do to scale the capacities of healthcare into the future. If you think about it, this will be one of the most important technology that as a civilization we've ever built, which is a, a tool that can condense the, the human knowledge and the human expertise in, in the field of healthcare and scale that beyond what we can do in our lifetime. <laughs> I like to, to say that a good thought experiment to think about useful technology to build is if, if uh, Armageddon hit and, and we need to preserve different technology, what would that be? And suddenly you, you wouldn't imagine a world of, of the future without this kind of scalability built into AI system that assists the future clinicians. So that's where I think in this space and building this fundamental technology is such a rewarding place to be. 
It really is. And I'm almost connecting the dots now. You mentioned that with your traction numbers after two years, you're almost impacting 600,000 lives. And the mission earlier was to impact the lives of a million people. Do you think that needs to be upgraded to something much larger, given how rapidly you've been able to show out the product, even within one vertical? Well, so, so our, our key objective is a million's life every day, uh, Mason. So that's a million recurring life every day. We are now at 600,000 lives a year. So we still have a long way to go before we have to revise that objective. But I think for this year alone, we're able to deploy the technology and support the radiologists in Australia. But it's really just the beginning uh, because this is really built as a global first business where the same technology can equally help in countries like UK, the US, Europe, and the rest of Asia. So we're really in the very beginning of that journey and scalability will come to address the health needs all across the world. I'm super curious to know on that note, what, what is actually giving you the most energy, Angus, at the moment? I think as a first-time founder in such a fast-growing organization, going from a dorm room startup with a couple of guys into now, as you if you talked about before, over... 250 team members across the world. I continue to be such so impressed by the talent that is really coming through the door. I'm, I'm energized and encouraged by our very talented team here at Harrison and in Annalise. And every day I'm surprised by some of the good idea that they came up with. And I like to say that we require a thousand good ideas more before we achieve these missions. So waking up every day and seeing people doing the live best work at Harrison and the reward of their, their hard labors through the patient outcome that we're starting to see now from Annalise, but no doubt we'll continue to see in other verticals as well as other product that Annalise will build is giving me the drive to wake up and, and go and do this every single day. I love that so much. Look, Angus, thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to see you again in 12 months time and hopefully get you back on the podcast to see where you're at. Thanks, Mason. Thanks for having me. Now that we've heard from Angus, let's zoom out and get an investor's perspective by speaking with Blackbird partner, Samantha Wong. Well, how are you? Welcome back to Wild Hearts. Thanks, Mason. I'm good. That's good to hear. We tend to reference memory lanes internally of Blackbird. So I wanted to walk down memory lane with you. What was it like meeting Angus and Dimitri for the very first time? There was a lot of anticipation around it, I would say, because it took so long to get that first meeting <laughs> in. Yeah. I first came across them. I was doing research in the healthcare AI and particularly fertility AI space. And I came across this website for harrison-ai.com. And somewhere on the website, I think it said something about Willoughby. And I was like, Willoughby, I mean, Willoughby is a suburb in Sydney. It's probably less than a couple of kilometers from where I was at that at particular time and never heard of them. I think I completed the contact form on the website because I couldn't find, um, I couldn't find any, anything else and then didn't get anything back from that. And so I think a few days after that, I managed to like track, or maybe I just guessed the name <laughs> of Angus's email. And I remember I sent that off at like the end of August, 2018. And it took Angus a month to reply. And the reply was just absolutely hilarious. It said, I'd love to meet up. I'm graduating from medical school in a month's time. Do you mind if we meet after that? <laughs> but then finished off with meet at our offices in Barangaroo. And I was oh, like, what? I know, exactly. <laughs> and we're working out of this crummy office in Surrey Hills. And then there were like, 
numerous reschedulings even after he had finished his medical exams, such that I think it was close to the end of the year before I actually got to meet the Angus from Harris and AI and he invited his brother Dimitri and who I think I knew was his co-founder. Actually, I don't think at that time it was clear that they were going to be co-founders. But anyway, both Dimitri and Angus were going to be there. And I rocked up at the Barangaroo Towers, the super fancy. And I was like, damn, they've obviously raised a lot of money already. It's probably too late. Little did I know it was free co-working desks at the Australian Computer Society. They had a co-working space and maybe they still do at Barangaroo Towers. And so they had a couple of free desks with the ACS and were able to present this very polished exterior or impression for me. And, and I remember we, I think we booked in an hour and we probably went at least 45 minutes over time. And I went straight back to the office and I remember plunking down in my seat and looking at Nikki and just going, wow. <laughs> and just feeling like this is why I do this job. It's to meet people like that to go on missions like this and I was just going to move heaven and earth to to try and find a way to invest move heaven and earth well what was what was the wow what was that like what what were they saying that really stood out to you as in a sense spine tingling the crispness of the vision that they articulated about how to build the business not just the outcomes I mean there was a period of time there's like a purple patch of where Everywhere you looked, there was a healthcare startup. Everyone was using computer vision to improve diagnostics in healthcare in some way. And there wasn't a heap of differentiation, to be honest, in how most companies were thinking about going about that. And the one particular thing that I just couldn't really wrap my head around at that time was everyone was building quite a niche solution. So breast cancer, tumor detection, prostate cancer, tumor detection, pick your favorite cancer detection, which is quite a narrow solution that would have to be sold to relatively individual consultants. It was like either bifurcated between these cottage industry of like very, very small consultants, sort of sole traders almost, or the New South Wales healthcare system. And I couldn't really understand how this very consultative trust-based sale that would have to be sold in an enterprise way. These people are not going to click on a Facebook ad and buy your AI was going to make sense for the price point at which you could sell the solution and how much it would cost to get a product through regulation, essentially. Bearing in mind, there are several markets to clear a product to fully realize the TAM. So that was the thing that was like swirling around in my head. I'm like, computer vision and machine learning absolutely needs to be deployed in healthcare, but I couldn't figure out in my mind the business model to do it and they just had it all laid out in so many rich levels of detail and every question they had thought about deeply I'm like okay so AI talent tell me about how you're going to like fight off deep mind well la 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 and some of that has and has not come to fruition some of it hasn't even been attempted yet because it hasn't been a challenge for them hiring in that example around talent but we talk about a lot the wild idea and doing your life's work and having rich insights they just had all of that from it wasn't even really the beginning it was pre the beginning as you just touched on there the go to market in healthcare at least is well, was and is still really hard what was it about their approach that most excited you so I think what's unique about Harrison, unique and weird and all the rest and original, is that they partner with a dominant healthcare provider in each vertical that they tackle. So, for example, in radiology, they partner 
with IMED, they form a JV. IMED vends in its data to train algorithms. That JV entity, which is part owned by Harrison, they collaboratively work out what is a solution that makes sense for this particular market and these data sets. And they build markets and sell it first to the JV partner. Private healthcare is incredibly concentrated in Australia. The second largest, I think, is Sonic, who is also a JV partner of Harrison AIs now. But the benefit of that is you really get to learn what is the right problem to solve, how to sequence your product development, how to integrate into the clinician's workflow so that once you're installed, you get really, really high utilization and are at low risk of being ripped out. And these are very, very sticky sales. And I think what is most interesting of all is that when you get a customer like that, you start to be able to become the standard of care. When you have sold to a customer who is so big in that market and everybody in that customer is using you and you are producing better results, like better healthcare outcomes, as a result of using that product, you're missing fewer tumors, et cetera, et cetera. You're just making fewer mistakes. You're delivering better quality healthcare. It doesn't really become an economic question for other healthcare providers. Do I want to spend X amount of money or do I want to deliver substandard care? Like substandard care is just, you can't do that, right? Like Mm. doctors, uh, clinicians and, and healthcare organizations are committed to providing the highest standards of care at a given point of time. And when you get that big customer, as a JV partner, it, it helps you drive that. And that's why we've seen within 12 months, literally of the first product and regulatory approval for the radiology chest x-ray product, two, two thirds of the private healthcare market are now customers for that product. And that's one quarter of all chest x-rays in Australia going through the Harrison AI algorithms. The clinical data shows that you're less likely to miss something if you use Harrison AI algorithms or Annalise AI is the JV name. So I think... At some point, there becomes a turning point when if you're not using it, you open yourself up to providing substandard care, potentially being sued, potentially missing cancers and all sorts of other conditions that can have fatal outcomes for patients. Isn't there a risk though that the data is all sourced from that JV, which by the way means joint venture? Sorry, yes. Is there a risk that the product is too indexed to that and then it's less applicable for other customers? That is absolutely a risk. And another one that I couldn't wrap my head around with respect to some other companies I'd seen where they, for example, were working with New South Wales Health or some, actually, this is actually a bigger problem with some foreign startups, particularly Chinese startups versus Australian startups. One of the benefits of working with Australian JV partners is one, private equity consolidation in the healthcare sector has meant some Australian healthcare companies are some of the largest in the world and have these multi-regional footprints. They often own businesses in the US, in Europe, to some degree, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, et cetera, as well. So their data sets are actually from captured from very diverse populations. And because they're often roll-ups, they're captured using imaging equipment of all brands and stripes. Some of the issues that some startups have had, for example, in China, there was like quite a famous example where they showed this incredibly performing, I think, chest X-ray algorithm, but all of the training data was from one particular type of chest X-ray machine. I'm probably butchering the story a little bit now, it's old, but that algorithm was not transferable to X-rays captured from other machines because the underlying data was too standardized. So that's the other asset, right, that you get. You've got to pick your JV carefully. You've 
the size of the data set is a very important input into this because generally speaking, when you have data sets the size of the ones that Harrison and I get access to, you're also getting the long tail of conditions because there's, like anything, there's a bulk of very common things that are found, but they're also the ones that clinicians can identify for themselves very easily because they're common. Mm. They spend five years, seven years, whatever training, they're the ones they see the most of. It's those really rare ones that are harder for them to pick, slower for them to pick, and the ones they're more likely, therefore, to miss, but are also probably like also the most critical ones not to miss. That's where having a very broad product trained off an enormous data set really makes a difference between a good product and a product that actually pushes the standard of care forward. Mm. How do you think about Harrison AI building a product that is 10 times better than the current standard of care? Obviously, every single life matters, but when these healthcare companies are making decisions, what do they need to think through and what actually moves the needle? I think from the software world or the startup world, it's really tempting to think that a customer won't buy something unless, for example, it replaces something that is a tenth of the cost of, of something else, that 10x kind of, or 10x is the productivity of a clinician or whatever. Yeah. What's really interesting is actually for, on a product basis, Harrison AI's products can 10x the productivity of a clinician, but that can't actually be achieved right now due to the regulatory structure. The way you would 10x productivity is essentially just have the radiologist maybe take the image and have the AI report on it, produce the report, shoot it off to the referring clinician and done. The regulatory environment requires every radiologist to look at that scan and that's great like that's that is the appropriate response to ensuring as these products come to market they are no worse and and hopefully with time better than clinicians as an abstract framework to work within harrison are clinically demonstrated in peer review data that they are better than the average trained radiologist, which is great. And they're unlocking productivity and other improvements for clinicians. And that's essentially what health providers want to buy. They want to buy better, better quality and happier clinicians. So I think that is the thing to wrap your head around when you start to invest in the healthcare space. Like it's a much more complex picture than just 10x faster or, or, or 10x cheaper. Mm. I want to zoom out on two things. One is what do you love just more generally about Harrison AI. And then I want to jump into a bit more of Angus and Dimitri's background. I mean, I love the founders, but if I'm not allowed to say I love the founders, then I would say I love the ambition of the mission. Most healthcare AI startups are ambitious, right? And want to change the world and want to improve healthcare outcomes. And who doesn't want that? But what I love is the ambition to not solve that one solution at a time, but rather parallelize that. Let's help infertile couples have children. That was their first JV. Their second one is, is radiology. Let's improve imaging diagnostics. And now let's do pathology. And I almost think about it as these two things as like horizon one is diagnostics. 
And then where would you go after that, right? Like Horizon 2 is going to be care and treatment. And mm-hmm. I almost feel there's like this limitless product roadmap or JV and product roadmap into the future. And every single time we do one of these, we are smarter because we have learned all these lessons that we carry forward into the next one. And so Harris internally talk about changing 1 million lives, but I... I honestly think that they'll need to move the yardstick because it's, it's, it, 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 <laughs> it's getting it's, close. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it needs to keep up with it, with their ambition in a way. Mm. And look, it's strange, right? JVs look strange. Partnering with big healthcare companies, not owning a hundred percent looks strange to many people, but I do think the best companies often do look strange in the beginning but there's a reason for the strangeness right and it is creating this sort of momentum and speed like I just don't know of any other companies that can capture the data build a product pass it through CE FDA FDA and TGA so these are the European Australian and US regulatory bodies and get it into two major customers in Australia like who does that in a year like that's just (laughs) it's strange but but it seems to be working I love that. I love that. Let's talk about the founders then. There is something unique about their life story and how they arrived at solving that magnetic mission that you just described. What is it about them that makes them so uniquely placed to build this company? I love that question. And I remember when I first was looking at the company and writing up the case, I I said a line something to the effect of these are two guys who deserve to win in life. And I really mean that. So they are two Vietnamese brothers born in Vietnam. Both their parents are teachers. Their dad is quite a famous celebrated mathematics teacher. He trains the Maths Olympiad and actually wrote the first textbook in Vietnamese for computer science. I believe they owned the first computer in Vietnam. Mm, they I heard that as well. It. Yeah. And apparently on the importation declaration, they had to write it was a microwave because computer wasn't an option. And wouldn't have, um, you know, necessarily been intelligible to whoever was reading it. So a fairly modest upbringing, but they grew up with that computer and there's some great photos of Angus tinkering away. And like so many people, they at different times left to go to Australia to pursue more opportunities. And Dimitri went first as the older brother and, and Angus followed him and finished high school in Australia. Dimitri was fortunate, I think, at university to across paths with Paul Ramsey, the founder of Ramsey Healthcare and and joined Ramsey and is passionate about democratizing healthcare and improving healthcare standards. He wrote a book, a couple of books around it as a not-for-profit around training up clinicians in in Vietnam. Angus fell in love pretty early with computer science and machine learning and I think wanted to study computer science but Paul Ramsey, who was a mentor to, to both of them, convinced him he should try and help more people than just computer science could achieve. And so he enrolled in medicine and became a doctor. And it was actually only during his medical degree where Angus was at a lecture by one of the IVF Australia researchers and quite boldly told him that uh, he could do his job better in terms of embryo selection using an AI than this celebrated professor of medicine could do and spent the summer essentially proving that I think it was a paid internship of some sort at IVF Australia and you have to love that right you have to love that story of a lot of sacrifice but a lot of ambition and guts and intelligence and pulling it together around this vision that really makes sense and I think what is difficult about 
this space generally, but especially the model they've taken with JVs is negotiating healthcare JVs is, is not for the faint of heart and neither is it straightforward to build regulatory standard diagnostic medical devices, which is what these are, they're software, but, they, but they're medical devices. And you just somehow have wrapped up in these two brothers, healthcare corp dev muscle with the AI machine learning muscle with the clinical experience as a doctor. And that's just such a magical combination. I just can't imagine how you would find that with that extra dynamic of being brothers and the efficiencies almost that you get and the sense of kind of bondedness mm. that you get through that connection. Intelligence, guts, and something to prove that is a seriously mean combo. And I, hopefully they do win. What does stunning success for Harrison AI look like? I do think it's inevitable that on some level, Harrison AI products are the infrastructure for modern healthcare. The diagnostic part, whether it's pathology and, and then radiology or the other way around, whatever the diagnostic being used is, that's being powered by Harrison. The clinical decisions and the treatments powered by Harrison. The hospitals where you're receiving your care being optimized operationally by Harrison. All of that infrastructure layer of healthcare. And hopefully not just for people like you and me, where we, we actually live in healthcare systems with great standards of care. But for people for whom access to the, these services might not otherwise be possible, maybe you can have a technician or a nurse operating the device guided by Harrison AI. I mean, I think there was a, a story that Dimitri told about how one of the hospitals they're working with in the US has more than 100 radiologists on payroll and the whole country of Libya has four. So uh-huh. like that kind of inequality when the cost to serve is low enough, then hopefully Harrison AI can be giving access to the kind of healthcare that we are privileged to have to everybody in the world. Far out. So you're on the board. What are you excited about over the next 12 months? Well, 12 months is not actually that that long in, in a sense in the healthcare world. Like we're, we're sort of busy building, but it'll all be behind the scenes. So we've got one product approved and out another product built waiting approval and another two that is a data data labeling phase like there there are distinct phases especially with building ai products and then so ramping the go-to-market on our existing products we've obviously just signed sonic and super excited to go deeper there in the histopathology vertical what a heinous time-consuming job that is slicing tissue and staring at it down a microscope and so much room for improvement there and that it's very heads down but I think pulling back a bit like what we really need to do over the next 12 months is scale this little blueprint of building startups within a startup mm-hmm. and that is like a real cultural operational challenge so for every new vertical or even potentially chunks of product families that we build, finding a leader, a CEO, a CMO, a CTO, a product team, a regulatory, all around that. And also creating the cross-pollination so that we have this like centralized base of talent that can be pointed in different directions. And again, that's new, right? Like it's in some ways it will be quite novel and we'll be hopefully breaking ground there. Absolutely breaking ground. Sam, thank you so much for joining me again on Wild Hearts. That was incredible. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mason. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed our latest episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you did, we'd be super grateful if you liked, subscribed, left a review, shared it with your friends, especially those who have that startup itch. Nothing is too early at Blackbird. We have a get investment section on our website where you can submit your vision and how your company will change the world. We'll see you again in the new year. Have a wonderful break.